Thank you each for sharing. I enjoyed share time. And as I was sitting here listening uh, to the different prayer requests, it goes right along with what I want to talk about today. And, and that is just the, the tension that we find ourselves in. We're, we're celebrating Christmas, and there is a king that's born, king of kings. He takes, he conquers death. Um, he just, he brings all this hope and a new kingdom, but yet not everything is right in the world that we live in today. We talked about you know, sickness and pain and things that happened. And so today I want to continue the, the Advent series, but probably looking at a, a different section of Scripture that we don't often focus on and just talk a little bit about that tension of, you know, God is in control, but yet not everything um, is exactly as it should be. So I'm going to show you a picture, and then we are going to read the text. Uh, here is the picture that I'd like you to focus on a little bit here. And uh, I'd actually love to know what you're seeing. If you look at it intently. It making you dizzy? Is anybody else feeling a little dizzy, feeling a little movement? Right, we're going to... This might make it worse. We're going to let this sit for the whole service, and we'll circle back to this, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. But uh, I don't know. I find this fascinating and irritating all at one time. But we're going to um, we're going to turn that off so we can concentrate on the text, and and we'll be back to it. Um, I want to read out of Matthew, and the the Gospel of Matthew is written for the Jewish people. And he is making the case that Jesus is the Messiah. And so again and again, he's going back to showing how Jesus fulfilled prophecy and how he uh, took, how it's really a type, how, how the children of Israel were a type and Jesus fulfills everything. So we'll see that trend happening again and again in the passage that we're going to read. I did ask Benson and Darius to help me out on this, so um, Benson is going to read the first part of it. You can follow along. We're going to read out of Matthew 1, and then Darius is going to continue in Matthew 2, and the primary text uh, for the morning will be right the, the next section after Darius finishes reading. So um, Benson, if you would, uh, go ahead and start us off in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought of these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled with the spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus.
Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born, king of the Jews? For we have, for we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he named of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had proudly called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard, heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. All right. Thank you both for reading that. So I want to pick up the story. Uh, at that point where we have Mary and Joseph and Jesus um, in Bethlehem. The wise men have come and worshipped him. Uh, there's been all of these things to confirm that this is the Son of God. And I want to continue reading in Matthew um, and read through the end of the chapter. And rather than reading this at one time, we'll go through this. We're just going to go through the story um, a verse at a time and just and talk about the story in three different sections. And I'd said how Matthew often says he, he will say something and then he's pointing out how it's to fulfill prophecy. And he does that three times in, this, in the sections that we're going to look at, and that's how we're dividing the sections. And uh, I'm not sure why, but just leading up to Advent, this is where my mind and where my heart has been is this story. And I understand that there's a, an element of sadness here, and it's just... It's a tough part of the Christmas story, but we're going to look at it, and hopefully, um, hopefully we can be encouraging to us. So I will pick up in verse, thir uh, verse 13. Now when they, or the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So just a couple of observations before we talk about the story. The child is the focus, if you think about the wording here. So the angel shows up and says, rise and take the child. And so throughout, that's the language that's used in, this, in the chapter. So Jesus is the focus. find it interesting that Mary is referred to as his mother. So recognizing that Joseph is not the biological father. Um, it's just interesting. And prior to this point, Angels had appeared to Mary and then to Joseph, but now that they are a couple, the, the angel appears to Joseph. Joseph takes the lead, and you wonder what all is going on in Mary's mind. Uh, but anyway, those are, those are a few observations. So 
we pick this up, and the first thing that, that the angel tells him is, is get up and flee. And just think about all that's happened. You have the shepherds coming, the wise men coming, and you're, you're to get up and to flee. And um, you are to go, and how long are you to be gone? You're supposed to remain there until I tell you. Why? Because Herod is going to come and search for the child to destroy this, to try to destroy the child. And one of the things that stands out to me is that God is aware of every evil scheme, no matter how hard people try to hide them. God is aware of, of every evil scheme. So I want to just rewind a little bit and just, I know we know the story, but I want to ask you to put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes for a bit here. So they became engaged, and engagement was different at this point. It was, I mean, it was considered being married, and you needed a divorce to break off an engagement. So Joseph is probably busy preparing for uh, the engagement ceremony and making a place for them to live. Mary miraculously is pregnant, and she goes and spends three months with Elizabeth and Zacharias, uh, which Danny talked about last week, comes back, and Joseph is planning to divorce her privately rather than make a spectacle um, out of her. God tells him in a dream, and he obeys, and so then they leave to go pay their taxes, and they have no idea what all is about to happen, so they leave their home. I'm assuming they're envisioning they're going to be gone, I don't know, a week or two or three to go pay taxes. They have no idea what, what's going to come. And like I said, the shepherds had come. They, Simeon and Anna confirm Christ. The wise men have come with gifts. And they might be thinking, wow, what is about to happen? How is Jesus going to just step in and show who he is? You know, where, what's going to happen next? And I think probably the last thing they expected to hear was, You've got to run because King Herod is coming to kill him. And so, uh, quite the surprise. We'll go on to verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. I, I love this. It's, you have this, the angel telling him, and the next thing that happens is, and he what? He gets up and goes. Um, would anybody else have loved to hear this conversation? Mary, Mary, wake up. We're What? You're, what's happening? How, I don't know how you are uh, when you wake up, when you've been sleeping. I am not at my sharpest game to process things when I, when I get uh, woken up. And here you have uh, the couple. An angel appears, and it says that he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night. So the assumption is that it was still that same night. I mean, I guess it doesn't specifically say, but the wording would sound that way. So here you have... Uh, Mary and Joseph, they leave to come to a place to register and pay their taxes and go back home. And all of a sudden, they're leaving in the middle of the night to run to protect, um, to protect Jesus. And they obediently go. And they leave for, Jesus, or they leave for Egypt. So Egypt um, was about 100 miles away. So for a little pers uh, perspective, it's if we would, from Catlett, get up in the middle of the night and we need to flee to Williamsburg is roughly how far it is. And, um, and they obey and they head out. We don't know where they le uh, lived in Egypt, but there were actually a lot of Jews that lived there. Um, they would go there for, for different reasons, and there were up to a million Jews living in Egypt at this point. So I want to just, just pause here and think about this. So the king of kings is just born, 
there's a king who is in charge of everything, and there's a new kingdom here. Does it seem like this is what's happening when you just read these verses? Does it seem like there's a king that is in control of everything? Um, so we have a king of kings that's born. He is born to young, poor. We know they're poor by the offerings that they gave. A newly married couple that's fleeing in the middle of the night, about to live as refugees. Does it look like this is a king? So I hope we can feel some of the tension that I had talked about, that sometimes things are not as they seem. So uh, carrying on to verse 15, um, oh, here's, here's a quick map of, of the area. So Mary and Joseph would have um, both been born or lived up around Nazareth. They would have come down to Bethlehem to pay taxes. They would have taken Jesus into Jerusalem on the eighth day. And then they are fleeing down here to Egypt, um, which is about 100 miles away. Verse 15, so they, they obey and they remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So if we just look at this, it, it doesn't seem like God is in control and God is redeeming his people. But he goes on to say this all happened to fulfill the prophecy. So this all happened to fulfill the prophecy. The prophecy is out of Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and, and burning offerings to idols. So here God is, God had called Israel to himself in a covenant love, even though they kept walking away from him. They weren't faithful. Um, David Platt said when we, in talking about this story that Joseph and Mary and Jesus are not just running from Herod, but they are painting a picture of our exodus from sin. So God is fulfilling prophecy, and he's giving us a picture of our exodus um, from sin. So Jesus is making the way for a new covenant for his followers to leave a life of sin. In, throughout Jesus' life, he is fulfilling the law and the prophets and everything that Israel failed to do. So let's just keep that in mind as we, as we look at the story. So our invitation at Christmas is to leave a life of sin behind and to, to follow Christ in a new exodus out of, out of uh, Egypt as a, a picture of what it is to leave a life of sin. I want to go on to the next section here. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod, he got tricked. He had planned to trick the others, but he got tricked first, and he goes into a complete rage and decides to kill all of the baby boys two years old and, and under. So just to pause a little bit here and talk about Herod, he was probably around 70 years old at this point, and he had reigned for about 35 to 40 years. And on the one hand, he's brilliant. He does all of these amazing building projects. He's got a palace. He's got cities, fortresses, stadiums. But he just, he was paranoid, and he wanted to be recognized as king. He had 10 wives, and he, at one point, killed his favorite wife, 
along with two of his sons. A third son he killed shortly before his death just because he wasn't trusting what was coming next. Um, this is who Herod is. There are some people, so the, the, uh, this tragedy is actually not recorded outside of the Bible. And so there are some people who would try to say that, well, maybe this didn't really happen. But in, the sad thing is in the context of history of all that Herod did, there were probably so many things going on that this didn't stand out. Um, at the point of his death, he had, he had gathered all the Jewish leaders together, held them there, and then he had them all executed just so there would be weeping when he passed away. This is who he is. And so he flies into a rage, and he does, um, he sends people to go, to go kill the two year, all the boys that were two years old or under. And I can't, I just can't fathom the horror of this and this um, situation. So Bethlehem at this point was probably around, people would estimate around 1,000 people living in Bethlehem. And so, again, people are guessing, um, but they would say probably 20 to 30 boys would have been around two years old. The families would have had, had this horror happen to them. So I want to just pause here again and just say, again, does this, things don't, they're not as they seem. You know, here's a king of kings and a lord of lords, but if you just stop in this very moment, does it feel like God is in control and God is redeeming his people? Um, it doesn't feel that way. So there's a new king promising peace on earth, and the question is, if God is with us, why is there evil, pain, and injustice? And that is still a big question that people wrestle with today. Why is there pain and injustice if God is who he says he is? But he goes on, the text goes on to say, God is not surprised by this. God is not out of control. But then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So a little history on this. Uh, Rachel, in the Bible, on the way back uh, to, the, to this land, she actually died in Bethlehem in childbirth. And so this is probably a reference to that, uh, where they tried to cheer her up um, with the birth of her son, but she wasn't. So it, it's, it's probably referencing that, but it also is referencing out of Jeremiah 31. There's a passage that says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And what this is prophesying forward to is when Babylon would come and just ransack Jerusalem, destroy their houses and their temples. And what's sad is the, the road leading out of Jerusalem would have stopped at, there would have been a spot where they would have gathered everybody together at Ramah, and they would have processed people. So, you know, imagine we're being taken exile. We stop at Ramah, and the Babylonian army is there saying, you know what, you're going to stay, you're going, you're going, you're going, you're staying, you're going. And so this would have been in their memory. This all happened at Ramah. This is who, and so when it talks about just the lamentation and the weeping, that's the context. And so it's talking about this exile. And the interesting thing about this passage is if you read on, it, I just want to read the next couple of verses, and the whole passage is actually a promise looking ahead to the new covenant. He says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, 
For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So Matthew's thinking on all of this and the horror of this, but the promise that there is hope in Jesus. There is a new covenant coming, and there will be, there will be redemption. If you think about Jesus, so the children of Israel were sent into exile because of their sin. Jesus was exiled, but it was not because of sin. He was perfect. He did need to go into exile to fulfill all that Israel didn't, um, but he was without sin. So just thinking um, you know, a little bit more about this, we can identify with a lot of people in the story, probably, but probably most of us don't think about identifying with Herod. Maybe you're a little different than I am. Um, but in you know, just thinking about Christ coming, he's king, and it does demand a response. And often our hearts are very prone to not giving Christ his rightful place. So Herod plays this out all the way to the end, but my heart is also prone to not giving Christ his rightful place. And the hope, the hope at Christmas is that Jesus does come and take away all of that sin. He loves us, he redeems us, and turns our heart back, uh, back towards him. So I won't spend much time on this, but just wrestling with, you know, why does God not stop evil like this? Why does he not stop evil like this? And... If something inside of us wants to rise up and say, just give them what they deserve. But if I'm honest, and, and all of us, if God truly gave everybody what they deserve, that would include me and all of us. So we see a God that is very much in control, very much redeeming people. His plans are never thwarted, but he doesn't force himself on people. He still allows free will. In the end, we know the end of the story that Jesus does conquer death and he rights all wrong. So I will be honest, for some reason, this story of what happens to the children here has bothered me for probably 20 years or more. When I read this passage, it just, it just feels so wrong. Um, and you think about the parents or the, the children, it just seems so unfair. And yet you have God who saves his son in this instance but is saving him to give him later. And so God does know and, and does go through that. So because I've struggled with the story, uh, I want to just, would you just imagine with me three scenarios? I, I would love to know how God met these families. What did God meet them in personal ways at some point in their life? And so just imagine with me, I have no idea if this happened, um, but I imagine a mom who lost one of, her, uh, one of these children, saying, you know, for 30 years carrying grief and devastation, and it doesn't make a, a bit of sense, and it's not fair. And I wonder if there was ever a day where she heard Jesus say, she heard a 30-year-old rabbi say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And did that help her get a picture of it? I don't know if there's a brother who was bitter and without hope, for 30 years or not, thinking about, you know, why was my little brother killed? Is there any chance that he was standing there watching Jesus tell Lazarus, come forth, and left knowing that Jesus has the power over death and hell? I don't know, was there ever a dad who thought that he could never trust a God that would take his son 
I think that would be that would be me. Is there a dad who carried that for 30 years and stood at Calvary and suddenly understood for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? I don't know. I have no idea how God met these people, but I do know that God is good, and I do believe he met these people in, in some way and um, is a just God in spite of, of what we see. All right, I want to look at the third section yet um, of this, of what's going on and, and are things as they seem. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So once again, we have Joseph. Um, an angel appears in a dream, and off they go. So they get up, and they, they go back home, uh, and they go back to the land of Israel. And I don't know for sure where they were planning to go, but it seems like they were probably planning to go to Bethlehem or Jerusalem. Their end goal was not to go back to Nazareth from what the, how the text would read. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he could be called a Nazarene. So he's told to get up and go back home, and he gets home, and he doesn't, just imagine a day where you don't know what's happening 100 miles away. So they didn't even know who the governor was, it sounds like, until they got there. This is definitely pre-WTOP and the internet. He gets there, and he is afraid because of who is king. And so it seems like he, they change course, and they go, they go to Nazareth, and at this point, we don't know if they've been gone six months or, or three years. But can you imagine Joseph and Mary coming back into town and, you know, look, look who has come back. And maybe Joseph and Mary saying, you will never believe what all just happened in the time that we've been gone. I want to just pause a little bit here and talk about Nazareth and then pick up the prophecy. So Nazareth is a... It's a little town or city. It's far from Jerusalem. Estimates are that there were roughly 500 people or so living in this town. And it's a really small area, about 10 acres. To put that in perspective, if you like to shop, it is about two and a half normal-sized Walmarts. So picture a town that's like you know, double, double a Walmart. It was a farming village. Uh, there were a lot of simple, small houses there. And it's interesting, they're, they're just um, they're digging and researching some of this stuff even pretty recently. And they're finding these uh, caves and things that are underneath people's houses where they would have stored things, maybe even hidden there. It had been on the road to Samaria. One of the interesting things to me was, you know, we picture Nazareth as being this small, sleepy little village. And in some ways it was. But it actually was right along a pretty major road. There would have been a lot of Gentiles around. And there was a very large city uh, three miles away from Nazareth, so about a 30 to 45-minute walk. There was a big city built on a hill that was actually like the hub of the government in that area. So we can imagine Nazareth, but you have to imagine it as a suburb or an outskirt of 
of the big um, city, the city would have had maybe 10,000 to 30,000 people, would have had a palace, a gym, a theater, that, an amphitheater that sat 4,000 people, and then this is, where, this is where Jesus grew up. So we know Jesus went back here and he worked as a carpenter. There was very little wood at this point, so he may have been a mason. He may have made uh, farm tools and household, household things out of wood, or this large city was actually going under quite a bit of construction while he was growing up. Again, I don't know this, but Jesus could have walked three miles into town and helped construct one of the large cities nearby. We don't know. But so he spent about um, 30 years of his life here, um, a little bit less than that, growing up in, in Nazareth. So he lived near Gentiles, which pointed forward to a gospel that is for all people. So they would have come back to Nazareth, and it's probably very likely that Mary and Joseph did not have a good reputation in Nazareth because of, of her pregnancy. Beyond that, it's a little town, and almost every time it's in the Bible, it was clear people didn't know about it. They would say, Nazareth, parentheses, a you know, town in Galilee, or they'd have to explain what it is. This town is never mentioned in the Old Testament, and it's a place that's actually really looked down on. We know this when Jesus calls Nathaniel, and he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And as far as a personal reputation, so Jesus, after he leaves Nazareth, he is baptized and tempted. He comes back to Nazareth, and it's early in his ministry, and he actually clearly says who he is. He says, he reads in the synagogue, he says, today this is fulfilled, and uh, here, is, here is their reaction. This is the people that he would have grown up with, that he would have lived around, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is Luke 4. This is the start of his ministry. So again, if you were going to hit pause right here, does this, and just look at what you know, does it seem like there is a king and a kingdom who's in control about to redeem his people. And from an earthly perspective, it doesn't. But God is working and is in control and is redeeming his people, and this is the plan. So he says, quickly here to wrap up, he's talking about it was spoken by the prophets. One of the things is there is no quotation about this in the Old Testament. We actually don't know what prophecy he is, he is referencing I want to just share two likely scenarios with you. The first one being that the word for Nazareth is very similar to and sounds like the word for branch. And the reason that that is significant because is in Isaiah 11, the prophecy of Christ is, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And so very likely... Um, Jewish people would have made that connection. It is also possible that it was a lot of prophets who were prophesying about the character of Jesus, that he would be meek and lowly. He would be despised and rejected. And that is certainly, that is certainly the reputation that Nazareth had, that he would be um, 
Uh, he would, would not have a good reputation. So he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. And in Scripture, that is typically, was typically said by those who were opposed to him. And even, um, even at his crucifixion, the sign said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And so it, it probably just carried a negative reputation throughout um, his entire life. One of the things that I find very fascinating in all of this is in the account of Saul, when Saul is struck blind on the road, how does Jesus introduce himself? I just want you to notice this. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And so even after Jesus had, had suffered and died and, was, and rose again, he introduced himself to Saul as Jesus of Nazareth. He was willing to take on, on that reputation. So Jesus came to serve and not be served. He came in humility to be broken for me. All right, I want to go back to the circle here in, uh, in conclusion. Has the picture been bugging anybody throughout the service? Hopefully not too bad. So the weird thing about this is we're actually looking at four circles that are evenly spaced. And the problem is the squares are slanted, which plays tricks on our minds, which makes the whole thing look like it's, like it's going in spirals. Are you, are you guys seeing that and agreeing with that? So that's, that's what's going on here. Here's my whole sermon in a nutshell. When I think about... Uh, the Christmas story and where we're at, and when we look at life, whether it's hard situations we're going through, whether it's things that are wrong in the world, whether we're looking at culture, I just want us to know that things are not always as they seem. Behind it all, there is a God who is in control. There is a God who is with us. There is a God who is changing one heart at a time in and we maybe can't even see the whole picture. When we look at what we can see, it might feel a lot like that picture, like it's spiraling. But the hope of Christmas is that there is a brand new king. We're in a new covenant. There's a new kingdom. And we can rejoice in that. And we can look for every opportunity to share that good news, to engage culture wherever we can. There is a king that is changing one heart at a time, regardless of how the world looks. And I just want us to be anchored in that um, as, we, as we celebrate Christmas um, this week and beyond. Thank you. Let's uh, join, join me in praying. If you would stand, I'll have a word of prayer and we can be dismissed. Lord Jesus, uh, we just want to pause here in your presence. And uh, God, we want to confess that we believe you are who you said you are. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, I want to thank you that you were willing to humble yourself and come. God, you came as a little baby and you had to flee and horrible things happened while you were here. Horrible things happened today. And God, you were willing to live in a town with a bad reputation. Um, God, you did it to redeem us and to usher in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that 
regardless of what we face, regardless of what we see or feel, that we could just remain faithful to you and know that you are King of Kings, you are redeeming us, and you are at work. God, I pray that we could walk faithfully with you, we could share that good news. God, protect our faith, and uh, we love you. Pray that you would just give us each a meaningful week leading up to Christmas and uh, whatever the week holds. Um, we love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.